The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. So given the, um, the shootings over the weekend, I wanted to just, <clears throat> just speak a little bit about responses in a way to that. Um, although mostly today I'd like to explore internal responses these events which are seeming to become so more increasingly common (laughs) these days are part of a pattern of mind states I mean our mind is what motivates action and so the those kinds of actions are taken with fear with anger with contempt with confusion and the response to that there's a place for sure for external response to respond with reflecting on the systemic nature of these kind of uh, situations the possibility of legislation that might support different outcomes And yet those actions too, it's helpful for us to look at and reflect on where do those actions come from? Because if those actions are coming from fear and contempt as well, anger, hatred, we are perpetuating a deeper problem that the whole thing is coming from. And so that's the piece I'd like to explore today is looking at these patterns, these undercurrents in all of our minds. For most of us, it does not rise to that level to kill. And yet the undercurrents, the patterns are worth looking at, exploring, and seeing what might be able to be done internally so that our actions that are in response to these events can be cultivating and spreading 
different different kinds of hmm, different kinds of states of mind. You know, fear, contempt, anger, these states are contagious. And we tend to mirror, we tend to meet fear with fear, anger with anger, contempt with contempt. And it's a a deep work for us to turn and instead of meeting fear with fear, contempt with contempt, to explore the possibility of meeting them with compassion, with wisdom, with kindness. And then actions can be motivated from those states of mind. Very different outcome happens when we respond from compassion than when we respond from anger. And so this work of <coughs> our practice, and this really to me is why we do this, this work, why we do this meditation is to uh, transform our own hearts and minds so that we are responding in the world rather than reacting. We are responding with care and kindness and compassion rather than hatred, greed, confusion. And it takes a deep, deep inner work to be able to do this in the world So we do need to practice. We need to sit in silence and explore what happens in our hearts and minds and where these patterns, these undercurrents arise for us. And they do for all of us. It was quite shocking to me at one point, early in my practice, my first practice was looking at the way my mind had so much anger. And in particular, it was with one particular person, this anger was tending to be flared up. And um, so I used this as a meditation practice to be aware when I was angry. And uh, at some point in that, over the first, it was early, it was maybe in the first month of looking at this anger, first month or so, at some point in watching the anger, one of the first things I noticed about it was that it was painful. It hurt to be angry. And I also began to see the kinds of thoughts that were swirling with the anger. And some thread of those thoughts had to do with wishing the person that I was angry with would suffer. Wishing that that person would be in pain also. And that, seeing that, with mindfulness, you know, so this, is, this was a mindfulness practice I was talking, I'm talking about. Being aware of the anger, being aware of the thoughts swirling with the anger. Seeing 
those thoughts, seeing how the heart kind of had this urge to lash out that the other person would suffer, there was a recognition in that moment. The way it was phrased in my mind was, this is where wars begin. This kind of mind that wants somebody else to hurt, this is the seed of war. And so that to me is, is kind of a pointer or a kind of a, uh, it, was, it was a motivation for me to really look inside at those undercurrents. It gave me some degree of uh, kind of respect <laughs> for the power of these states of mind, how strong they are and how out of control they can get. I don't think I would have done anything physically to that person, and yet seeing the, the pattern, you know, the pattern inside helped me to have some degree of kind of awareness and maybe just the beginning, the beginning uh, inklings of compassion for people who act out of those states, seeing that it was not separate from this heart and mind. And so this is this is the this is kind of the the place or the reflection I wanted to explore is is to look at these undercurrents these deeper patterns of what are called the unwholesome mind states those mind states that are motivated out of greed out of aversion out of confusion these mind states that tend to be those that we react with when we're not really present we often will act out of the, the habitual current of these deeply conditioned patterns, deeply conditioned mind states. These unwholesome states include the range of challenging emotions from fear, confusion, contempt, anger, hatred, rage, avarice, pride, greed, boredom even, and just disconnection. And so these unwholesome states are, are rooted in kind of these, the, the, this basic movement of kind of like wanting things to be a certain way a movement towards things being in a certain, you know, a movement towards a pleasant, a movement away from unpleasant. So these, these, these states of mind are rooted in greed and aversion and, and confusion, some delusion, because the, um, the mind that is reaching for something that's pleasant or, or saying, you know, and with the sense of, this is how I'll find happiness, I will find happiness by getting that pleasant thing, getting that pleasant reinforcement of somebody praising me or whatever. Pleasant, pleasant, pleasantness isn't just about material things. It's often also about how people see us, how we want people to see us. 
the movement of wanting not to be associated with unpleasant things, kind of the counterpoint to the pleasant, that we believe in some way that our happiness depends on being with the pleasant and not being with the unpleasant. And that belief is the root delusion, confusion around happiness. And this is essentially what the Buddha discovered in his own his own life, his own practice, his own exploration, that there's a different kind of happiness that is not reliant on manipulating the world to create the conditions where we're always with pleasant and never have unpleasant. He found a way to be at ease with the world, aware that pleasant and unpleasant will come and go. And the mind can be at ease with that. Now that doesn't mean non-action. As I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, that action, action can come from wisdom and compassion and generosity and kindness. And with the seeing things as they are, with, the, with being able to kind of recognize, yes, pleasant is here, unpleasant is here, this is the situation, this is what's happening. The more clarity that we have with the, the situation of things as they are, the more capacity we have to respond not from anger and hatred and greed, but rather to respond from compassion and kindness and love. And yet this does take our willingness to open to those undercurrents, to, not, to be really honest about those undercurrents, to, uh, to recognize that those undercurrents are, are there, not to repress them, but to see can they, can they be held in the light of mindfulness and can we cultivate a new relationship with them? So the Buddha had some suggestions, and, and this is kind of to tie, ties in with the theme that I've been exploring in this particular class for the last while. At this point, um, we've been talking about the Eightfold Path, and uh, the last time I was here, we talked a little bit about the, the, the four right efforts And these right efforts are around exploring and cultivating um, the wholesome qualities and letting go of the unwholesome qualities. These wholesome qualities are love, compassion, kindness, patience, wisdom, mindfulness, concentration, joy, delight. There are many, many wholesome qualities that can be cultivated And there are many unwholesome qualities that we need to explore a new relationship to so that we're not just automatically acting out of them. And so these four right efforts are are kind of uh, looking at these two sides of the equation. How to uh, let go of, how to um, avoid or to prevent unwholesome states from arising, how to how to uh, let go of them when they do arise. And on the other side, how to cultivate the wholesome qualities, how to maintain them when they do arise. 
And so uh, last time I did a kind of an overview of these, and today I'd like to explore a little more on working with these undercurrents of the unskillful, these states that are motivated out of greed, aversion, and delusion. This is a lot of what we need to, to see, to work with. Because if we don't, if we, if we you know, kind of just um, kind of repress or deny that we have those feelings, that, they're, that we kind of deny that they're a part of us, then we are kind of allowing them to go into that, those undercurrents unchecked and they will erupt. They will erupt. And so the, the work with these, uh, these challenging states of mind is to uh, begin to allow them to, to begin to understand them. And actually this was the, the, what the Buddha said in the first noble truth is that we need to understand suffering and these states actually are suffering that was something that i really learned in those early weeks that i mentioned of looking at anger you know i i i it was kind of a, another shock to me around this there were many shocks i found in observing that anger another one of those shocks was just how painful it was and how much i thought somehow that that anger was helping me you know, I thought somehow that that anger was um, uh, going to make me feel better. It was going to create the conditions for me to feel better somehow. And what my mind was doing, what I saw happening there was that the mind was kind of projecting at some point in the future that, well, when that person gets their due, then I will feel better. And, you know, that, that, uh, that basically that, that mind was, again, there's a lot of delusion in there. There's a lot of delusion in there to think that I would actually feel better if somebody else was hurting. There's some delusion there. But also the, there's delusion in the giving away or the, um, the willingness, let's say, the willingness to forego an ease and of heart here and now, the willingness to say, this anger is what will make me happy in the future. When looking inwardly, that anger was actually hurting me now. The Buddha described this analogy around anger. He said, it's as if you've picked up a hot coal to throw at somebody. You have burned yourself first. And that spoke so much to me. It's like, yes, that's what I was doing. I was picking up the hot coal. I wanted the other person to suffer. I wanted them to be burned by that hot coal. And I was not aware, actually, so much of how much it was burning me. And so these states of, these unwholesome states, when we start to look at them, they actually are suffering here and now. And so this is what the Buddha encouraged us to do, to understand these states, understand the suffering. He didn't say to repress it. He wanted us to understand what was happening. And so one of the first places in the, in the four right efforts, there's two uh, actions that are associated with working with these unwholesome states. The first is to uh, explore an avoiding 
of the arising of unwholesome states that are not here at this moment. And so that involves a little bit of getting to know our minds. When do these unwholesome states happen? What are the conditions that, that happens there? What, what goes on? So kind of getting familiar with our minds. When do we tend to get angry or confused or, or frustrated or um, desirous or whatever? You know, what, what with these, these challenging states of mind, when does it tend to happen? And then looking at potentially, you know, how can we um, um, navigate our lives to not have those states arise. Now, on the first, on the, there's some obvious kind of ways here, or some, some kind of, in the avoidance, um, you know, trying to, exploring the possibility of, of avoiding unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. Well, the first thing, again, we have to do is to be willing to be mindful with when they do arise so that we can get to know our minds, get to know what the conditions are, and so there's certain kind of more obvious situations that, you know, maybe, you know, maybe there's some value in avoiding particular kind of scenarios at times. You know, that, that, that um, you know, if, you're, if, you're, um, if you know that having particular kinds of conversations with a particular person who has very different views than you tends to create those emotions of anger, of contempt, of fear, of potentially avoiding those conversations can be a skillful means. That's the most obvious or most kind of uh, the grossest way to work with this avoiding. Another, another um, uh, s- tool or strategy that's helpful is to be grounded in ethics. So the, the part of the Eightfold Path that immediately precedes right effort is the ethics section. And so it, it encourages us to avoid certain actions, avoiding killing, avoiding taking what's not given, avoiding um, um, false speech, avoiding um, um, creating harm through our sexuality. In general, avoiding creating harm. And in that avoiding of those actions, we are also, we may not be at that moment avoiding or, or refraining from, in a way, avoiding the mind states that may be motivating those actions. You know, so the anger, the confusion that may be motivating those actions. But the, uh, the refraining from the actions will help the mind to um, uh, not experience the consequences of acting on those unwholesome states. So the, 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 um, the guilt or the remorse of actually following through on taking what's not given, on killing, on stealing. So the mind is cultivating or is refraining from avoiding the unwholesomeness that follows from acting out of unwholesome states. And so that's another, another aspect of the avoidance. But at a subtler level... To simply, to simply be avoiding situations that 
create conditions for us to be angry or confused. We don't then develop the skills for meeting those situations. And so the, the, the next piece that the, uh, the Buddha offers in terms of the avoiding unwholesome states that have not arisen is a, is a tool that is typically termed something like sense restraint. And again, this can be used in more obvious and more subtle ways. But the, um, the sense restraint is kind of like the m- much of the time when we are uh, responding with greed or aversion or confusion, there's something that we have seen, something that we've heard, something that we have sensed or tasted, some sense contact that has kind of stirred us up and that is beginning to generate thoughts and ideas and emotions that are connected with that sense contact. Something we've seen, something we've heard often in those two senses seem to be the biggest, (laughs) some of the biggest ones. And so the sense restraint is, again, uh, on retreats sometimes we teach a sense restraint that is actually avoiding looking at people, um, you know, to kind of let our, our gaze kind of, fall down to like six feet in front of us and to not be looking around a lot. And often on retreat, this is extremely helpful because we see how much in the looking around, you know, how much our minds just pick up on aspects of what we see, aspects of what we hear, and just run with it. On a retreat, we might, you know, just simply notice how much food somebody puts on their plate. And we run with that. Our mind just takes off with that. And so on retreat, we we can explore not looking around as much and begin to see just how much of the the, um, activity, those, those patterns in our minds are kind of leaping off of not only the sense contact, but a lot of the ideas that are kind of connected with that sense contact. And so we learn something about our minds there at how much of our our reactivity is born not just from the sense contact, but also from how our minds play with that, how our minds kind of uh, stir that up. And so that's, you know, so that's one way to look at sense restraint is to, is to, you know, just let yourself not um, to guard the senses. And I will do this at times, um, at particular times. Like, for instance, um, I may, um, as I'm driving here, uh, turn on the radio to listen to the, uh, the, 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 the traffic so that I know what I'm coming to. I'll let myself listen to a few headlines or something. But then at some point, if I find myself kind of getting a little bit stirred up, I let myself turn the radio off. So that, I mean, it's so that so that that stirring up doesn't happen. So that's that's again. This is the more obvious way of relating to sense restraint, recognizing what things do stir us up, and to like not engage with those senses at that time in that way. And yet, the more the deeper way of exploring this is to kind of begin to be curious about what happens in the sense realm. And this is basically using, so the guarding of the sense doors might be an, a kind of a, 
a physical guarding where we maybe put on like shields or don't look around or turn off the radio. That's a kind of a physical guarding of the senses. But there's also a way to guard the senses that is guarding with mindfulness. That we get much more clear about what we are hearing, how it's affecting us, what we are seeing, how it's affecting us. And in this way, and and I discovered this on retreat as well, actually. Uh, Joseph at one point, Joseph Goldstein, I definitely noticed going into the dining hall that there was a lot, you know, you're you're with a hundred people in the dining hall at, at IMS and there's a lot of mental proliferation that can take off from how people are doing things. And it, initially I was doing a lot of like just not looking. But then he suggested, you know, as soon as you go into the dining hall, start being aware that seeing is happening. Be really aware of seeing. And that, that begins to, that's a different form of sense restraint. Instead of letting this, the, the mind, because this all really happens in the mind, instead of letting the mind kind of come out of the, the seeing into the thoughts about the seeing, you just know that seeing is happening. This is a very powerful tool. And it can also be a way that the mind will avoid that leap. The, the, the leap into the stirring, the leap into the, the mind judging and comparing and uh, all of the, the various things that we do. So that's, that's one of the tools, is this kind of... Uh, but this takes quite a bit of mindfulness, and there are times, especially in daily life, I'd say especially in daily life, where the momentum of mindfulness gets weaker, on retreat, we have much more of a momentum of mindfulness and we can really start to play with this um, using mindfulness to guard the sense doors and seeing how, just being aware of seeing as you're looking around creates the conditions for the mind to not jump onto whatever little detail and proliferate or run with that. But in daily life, our momentum of mindfulness tends to be weaker. And so we may need to do more of the more obvious forms of sense restraint. Just letting our eyes not pay attention to that particular thing or turning off the radio to support ourselves in the avoiding of these unwholesome states. And then the, the, the second aspect of wise attention that uh, r- deals with these unwholesome states is what to do when they do arise, because they will. We can be guaranteed of that. They will arise. And so to not take it as a failure when it happens, you know, it's like if you're working with the first kind of uh, sense of, of, if you're working with sense restraint, if you're working with avoiding unwholesome states, you know, you might think, you know, oh, I need to get that perfect. But actually, you know, what we really need to do is to, um, uh, rather than thinking about a perfection of that one, is like when, when they do arise, seeing can there be a different relationship with them? 
So, you know, typically when these states arise, when we're not mindful of them, and again, mindfulness is really our, our friend, our, our guide here. Um, when, they, when they arise, our typical relationship with them is when we're not mindful, it's like we run with them, kind of like I did with that anger. You know, the, the thoughts get churning, the, the views that are associated with them, the beliefs that are associated with them kind of come to the fore, and we are kind of in the thrall. We are enchanted by that state of mind. And we believe in that enchantment that it has the answer. That state of mind is what is going to help us to navigate whatever challenge we are having. That contempt or that self-righteousness or that anger or that hatred, that we believe, that when we're enchanted by it, we believe that it is going to help us navigate the situation. And so the, the, uh, the first thing that we need to recognize with mindfulness is that it is um, it is deceiving us. It is that we are caught by that enchantment and that can we begin to be aware this is an experience of a human being experiencing this emotion. That's maybe a way to phrase what, uh, what happened for me when I noticed those thoughts around the anger and the uh, the wish for somebody else to be hurt, that it was uh, there was a, a kind of a, a recognition. Oh, this is human. This is not just about me and my personal conditioning. This is a human experience, and it opened my heart to that kind of wider connection to humanity. And so the uh, the teaching that the Buddha offers about when these states arise. He says that they, the word that is often translated as they should be abandoned. Now I need to stop or pause with that word because um, we may have a kind of relationship with that word, different kinds of relationships, um, where we basically think of, you know, this means that I'm supposed to stop doing this thing. I'm supposed to just walk away from it whatever this state of mind is, if anger is arising, abandoning anger might mean to us, well, I just stop it. I just, I just don't do that anymore. And what I'd say, is, you know, that is not often possible to simply say, oh, well, that's happening. I won't do that anymore. The, the, the kind of the undercurrents are powerfully conditioned. And so, again, the respect for how powerful that is, to think that we should be able to say, oh, that's happening, that anger is happening, I won't do that anymore, is that if, we, if we're trying to do that, then often what we're doing is a repression. Often we are kind of like just sending it underground. There are times, there are definitely times when especially the more that we practice, the more that we begin to understand these patterns, the, these, these difficult states of mind, the more we begin to understand them, um, the more that the, that understanding and that wisdom can help us to recognize, oh yeah, that's happening. 
hmm, maybe I should explore something else right now. So there are ways that we can abandon that's that experience, not by repressing it, but kind of like by turning our attention elsewhere. This is one of the one of a, a, a very supportive tool. It's like, oh, that's happening. That that anger or that hatred or that rage or that confusion is happening. And wow, that that maybe maybe we don't have a capacity to be with it. I would say that that is probably the the biggest medicine for us is is exploring can I know this is happening and hold it as a human experience and have some level of okayness with the fact that it is happening. Yes, anger is arising. Wow, this is painful. This is not personal in that it is a human condition that anger arises. And can I have some degree of okayness that that is happening? If that is possible, I would encourage you to see if you can hang with that. Know, begin to know the experience of that, that human experience of that difficult state. And, and our capacity for that, our capacity to meet that kind of difficult state with mindfulness in this way, not, not to, to just know that it's happening, but to know that it's happening and to hold it with some degree of a kind of um, wisdom. The wisdom that this is a conditioned state, the wisdom that this is a human condition, and the wisdom that it is also, uh, because it is a conditioned state, that it won't last forever. And so the, the, if the mindfulness can hold it, we will begin to be able to see a kind of a trajectory or a kind of maybe an ebb and flow around that state. We may even see it kind of wane. And so we learn something about that state. We learn it's impermanent. We learn something about the conditions that are associated with it. And we also learn at a very deep and visceral level that it is painful, that it is suffering. And for me, this was a big piece. This has been a big piece of the learning around these difficult states. Because as the mind begins to understand right in the moment, yes, this is suffering. I have picked up that hot coal and my hand is burning. You know, our, our mind begins to recognize, yeah, that's not so helpful. Let me drop the coal. Let me drop that. And so this is a form of abandoning that happens with wisdom. With the mind that has understood the pain with that, that this is not a helpful emotion in this being, in this moment. The mind, the, the wisdom, actually the wisdom of understanding does the work of abandoning. And yet, and yet we can't always have that kind of relationship to our difficult states. There are definitely times when the, the kind of the momentum of the conditioning of these painful, challenging states is so strong that we can't be with it, that we can't have that kind of perspective of, oh, this is, this is a difficult state that's arising right now. If we try to do that, 
And there were many times for myself with the anger in the early years of my practice when anger arose that I could see that um, trying to be with the anger, trying to be, meet it, trying to be mindful of it, the, 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 it was like the, the, the conditioning or the force of the anger was much stronger at times, not always, but at times the force of the anger was stronger than the capacity to be mindful. And so what I'd see sometimes is that if I tried to be, be mindful of that anger, I would just almost immediately be caught in that whirlpool of anger, getting pulled under, feeling like I was being sucked under the, the, in, into the undertow of that state of mind. And so this was a place where the uh, avoiding or the abandoning here took a more active form of redirecting the attention. And so being aware, yep, there it is. This kind of redirecting of the attention, it's, it's a delicate thing in, in how we do it. Because if we're doing that with aversion, like, oh, I don't want this anger I can't be with this anger. It's a bad thing. If we're doing it with that kind of an attitude in the mind, then we're reinforcing that aversive state. And so I learned over time to kind of have a sense of real respect for that state of mind and to kind of have a sense of you're you're kind of bringing something to the fore that needs attending to. Often I think anger does that. There's often our difficult emotions are kind of almost like signposts or warning signals that something needs to to be attended to. And with the the anger, I I was recognizing, yes, there's something valuable that you're pointing out here, but I can't be with it right now. And so I would kind of like almost bow to that anger. Like, yes, I see you. I see that you have something valuable to say, but I can't, I can't do this right now. So, you know, yeah, you can take a walk with me, but I'm going to put my attention in my feet. So redirecting the attention, just setting aside, in a way, the uh, attention on that state and putting my attention on something else, but not with aversion. And so it, it was not a repression. It was much more of a like, yep, you can hang out there, but I'm going to just pay attention to something else. So that, that kind of redirection is a very skillful means. Sometimes it's easier than others. Sometimes we can um, you know, let, the, let that state kind of hang out with us. You know, kind of almost like there's something going on, something challenging. At one point in uh, when I was practicing in Burma, I was dealing with over the course of several weeks a low-grade depression, and um, it kept kind of popping up. and And what I discovered was there were times I could be with it, and there were times that it was, you know, it tended to have a sti- more sticky quality to it. And when it had a more sticky quality to it, it wasn't so sticky that I had to actively avoid it. But what instead I explored was, okay, well, that's happening. That challenging state, the depression is coming up. But there's other things going on too. Seeing is happening right now. And hearing is happening right now. And there's body, yeah, I'm walking and there's the sun on my face. And there's kind of, oh yeah, there's actually kind of a relaxation. Oh, and there's the depression. 
Oh, and there's the, okay, now seeing is happening. But it's kind of like making a bigger container. Because sometimes these difficult emotions are kind of like a magnet. They draw the attention. And we can actively at times just remind ourselves that it's not the only thing happening. You know, that sometimes our, our mind just gets like myopic around that difficulty. And, and it's just like our, our mind is like in the sand of it. And that's all that we can see. But sometimes we can consciously broaden our attention, remind ourselves that there's more going on. And so that was a helpful tool, just reminding myself, yes, seeing's happening. Here's, oh, and there's the depression, and they're seeing, and they're seeing. Kind of like as soon as the mind kind of got drawn to it, I would like demagnetize. I would go, oh, yep, and. It's like, that's and there's something else. And there's something else. And there's something else. And not, again, not a repression, but a broadening of the container. Sometimes if it's really sticky, we have to be a little more active around the, uh, the demagnetizing. Really stay away from that state. And, you know, in, in some ways using the field, for those of us who have sight, using the field of seeing can be a powerful tool uh, if we can um, pick one thing after another to look at. In a room like this, corners are, are great. You know, you can just pick a corner and look at a corner. Let's all do this right now. I've done it in here before, but some of you may not have done this. So pick a corner. Any place two lines come together. It doesn't have to be the physical corner of the room. There's hundreds of them, if not thousands in this room. Places where two lines come together. So pick a corner and just look at it for now. Just a, a, a moment. And then pick another one. For a second, connect. And it's not like a deep, like penetrating mindfulness of that corner of seeing. It's just like knowing it's there and then switching to another one. About once a second or every half second, switch to another one. It's helpful to move your head. So we'll do this for like 30 seconds. Find a corner and switch. Find a corner and switch. So, just a couple words. Any, what did you notice in doing that? Anybody have anything? That, just a word. I'll, I'll repeat it. You don't need to use the mic. How was that? Yeah. This is boring. Why am I doing it? You, okay, so boredom was there. Okay. <laughs> anything else? I found it very centering. Very centering. Yes. Yes, yeah, so centering, and that when you're painting, you have to focus on something, yes. So anybody else have... Aware of how much I hadn't noticed before. <laughs> aware of how much you hadn't noticed before. So the way this, this can work, and it doesn't always work, but, and for some people, it, this field of seeing is not quite as um, uh, kind of supportive as it is for others although one thing you could try actually is doing it outside and corners can be boring but when I do this outside you know I just like oh picking a little notch of a tree or a leaf and then a little spot 
you know, uh, on the bark or a little spot on the sidewalk, just using various kind of, more like the the painting where you're really zeroing in on something. Um, but what this does essentially, if you and if you are experiencing some kind of very sticky state, something that is hard to not be with, often we can pay attention to something very concrete for like a second. And if we remember to switch to something else very concrete for a second, and then another, and then another, and then another, it like pulls a chain of not paying attention to the magnetic thing for some seconds. And it can uh, allow the mind to, to let go. It's almost like it demagnetizes it a little bit. That the, the power of that magnetic pull is reinforced by the mind keep going back to it. And if you can stay away from it, even for as little as two minutes, it will have a very powerful uh, uh, demagnetizing effect. And this, uh, this uh, tool of just staying with this for, you know, even 90 seconds, you know, can be very powerful. So that's, that's an, another uh, support for when there's something really strong. That's a, a, a powerful form of abandoning, essentially. We are abandoning engagement with that magnet, but not repressing it, not trying to stop it. The, uh, the, the, um, the approach of mindfulness with the difficult states, what we are abandoning there is, um, so when we are exploring, okay, well, this is what it's like to be a human being that's experiencing this challenging emotion. What we are abandoning is our habitual response to that emotion. We are abandoning our beliefs that following through on it will lead to happiness. And so that's how the, and, and, the, and being able to witness something about the difficult state creates the growth of wisdom and understanding that also supports in the future the, um, you know, the, the more we begin to understand, and I saw this so much in those first weeks of my practice, first couple months of my practice, of looking at anger, of being with anger, and just being aware of it, how, uh, how the, um, the knowledge or the understanding that the anger is painful to this being began to weaken the pull towards anger and actually began to support the mind at one point to actually see the mind heading towards anger and the mind just going, no, not, not that. Wisdom, basically. You know, like, like reaching for the hot coal, the mind understanding before it gets there, that will be burning. Don't pick it up. The mind begins to understand it at that level because it has experienced the burning. I mean, we feel this in, in, in the physical realm. I've noticed this. Um, as I walked to the edge of a... Um, I was, I was um, visiting my family and we went out for a drive and looking at waterfalls. And as I walked to the edge of a, um, uh, a precipice, you know, my body just kind of dropped. And it's like, you know, don't go any further. That's enough, you know. So it's like our, our system begins to understand, you know, what what the consequences of something are when we are aware 
And so the same kind of thing happens as we become aware of our difficult states. Our mind begins to understand that way lies suffering. So it it can redirect. And that is a way in which wisdom abandons the state before it has arisen. You know, this, and, then, and so there we come about, that's how mindfulness and wisdom help us to avoid those unwholesome states that have not arisen. And so one of the pieces I just want to bring in in this last minute or so here is, is you know, often in this discussion of wise effort, looking at abandoning unwholesome states that have arisen and avoiding the arising of unwholesome states that have not arisen. There's a kind of a a question of, well, how does mindfulness fit into this? Mindfulness is what helps this whole process. Mindfulness is not counter to this. Everything that we've talked about here uses mindfulness to support this. As we are mindful of unwholesome states, it creates the conditions for in the future, there to be fewer of them. As we are mindful of these unwholesome states, it creates the conditions for our mind to let go of them. And so mindfulness is really not at all counter to, to these states. And to tie it back to the beginning, to, um, to, to just respect these states and how powerful they are in our culture, in our world. The more that we abandon these unwholesome states, the more that we cultivate the wholesome states, that abandoning and that cultivation are also contagious. And so the, you know, I I mentioned early on that, you know, that we tend to meet fear with fear and contempt with contempt. We also tend to meet love with love and compassion with compassion and non-fear with non-fear. And so these, as we, as we cultivate these in our own hearts and minds, it not only supports our own freedom and ease of heart, it has ripple effects in the world. And this, I think, is really what our world needs so much right now this inner, inner work along with the outer uh, responses to these tragedies. So it's time to stop. Thank you for your attention.